The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you call us to come boldly to your throne of grace, to pray with audaciousness, and to lay hold of you for great things. We ask you, as Ryan brings this word of truth to us, that our ears would be open, our hearts would be submissive, and that we would learn much and desire much more communion with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Nancy. Good morning, church. Um, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan. Uh, I am uh, a deacon of Grace City. And uh, it's amazing to see a lot of you guys back, right? So some of you guys have been gone. uh, And just seeing you today brings my heart uh, it, it brings my heart to full joy, and it's amazing to see you. And one of those, uh, one of those people that came back is uh, our, our lead pastor and his wife uh, from Hawaii. And I, I just want to say, hey, welcome back, guys. Welcome back. We love you guys. Now, uh, our, our chapter today is really, 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 and I can't stress that enough, hard. Amen? Hard in the sense that it is deep and it is spiritual and it is hope-filled. Now, a lot of people can actually look at that chapter and say, what can I, how can I apply prayer? So if I ask you, how's your prayer life, you'll probably say, eh. Or you'll probably say, oh, I'm good. I pray like five times a day. But see, that's not the point. That's the application of prayer is secondary to the fact knowing who God is in prayer. And that's what I wanted to kind of pursue today with you guys and find out what prayer is in the presence, in response to who God is. Not us, not us, but who God is. So before I get started, I wanted to uh, read some quotes, um, two of them, one from Harriet Sherwood, uh, she's a religion correspondent for The Guardian, and I don't, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to, uh, uh, if you can put it up there, and I'm just going to read one part of what she said about prayer. She said, one in five adults pray while doing household chores or cooking, right? 15% while traveling, 12% during exercise. And some of those say that they believe that God hears their prayers, which suggests a slim majority feel their supplications are not Answered, four in ten go further saying prayer can change the world. Okay, hear that, listen to that. Then let's go to the next quote uh, with this New York Times author who's uh, who's more of an atheist. 
as he described himself and, t- and, and kind of see how he described prayer. Again, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I want to pick out some things that he said. He said, prayers benefit only those believers who say or hear them. And then he says that prayer, we often see in the last part of that, we often see people with good intentions praying for victims in the wake of tragedy. And we've seen that a lot. But prayer is useless without action. And those actions make the prayers irrelevant. Now, whether you go on one extreme or another, there's an inaccurate view of what prayer is. And that's where I want to go back. James wants to go back there. Now, James has been, uh, has been going all a gamut of, of what to do or how to be a Christian from chapter 1 to chapter 4. And you can look at that and say, man, I have got a long way to go. I can't do all of that. And James knows that. And that's why in chapter 5, he's wrapping it up and he's putting foundational, truthful, and sometimes, sometimes hurtful commentaries about us. But that's not where he stops. See, prayer is a gift of God. And he wraps all of that in prayer. And he wants to know what prayer is because he wants to give you hope in the midst of your circumstances. So listen, when, when Nancy read the verse, did you notice how many times prayer was read or was in those verses? It's almost each one. Now, know the implication that prayer is significant not only to you, but it's significant to who God is. Tim Keller said this, about prayer. We would never produce the full range of biblical prayer if we were initiating prayer according to our own inner needs and psychology. It can only be produced if we are responding in prayer according to who God is as revealed in scripture. Some prayers are in the Bible, in the Bible are like an intimate conversation with a friend, others like an appeal to a great monarch and others approximate a wrestling match. We must not decide how to pray based on what types of prayer are the most effective for producing the experiences and feelings we want. We pray in response to God himself. Isaiah 56, 7 says this, God says this to his people. He said, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Now, a little bit of background. God is talking about the tabernacle that he was going to dwell within his people. He's saying that his house of prayer. You know, what's interesting, though, as Jesus has come and saved us and redeemed us, we are that tabernacle We are that temple. So know the significance that when God says, I will dwell in my house of prayer. And when Jesus said that his spirit will come upon you, that you are the house of prayer. Know the significance. Know the significance. It's not as easy as we think. And one of the hardest part of seeking prayer and going over prayer was the fact that I was being convicted on about how I prayed. And I hope that the Holy Spirit convicts you today. 
When prayer is done right, it brings about a covenant relationship with God. See, prayer in its essence is a covenant. It's relational, it's devotional, it's experiential, it's doctrinal. All of that is prayer. Now, we haven't even gotten to James yet, and I want to frame James. Now, I don't know how far I'm going to get today, but know that I'm doing this for the good of your soul, for the good of my soul. So however far we get, know that next week we're going to continue on prayer. But what I want to do is be faithful to what God has brought onto my heart and what he wants to say today. Amen? So I want to do that for you guys. I want to do that for you guys. So as we get further to uh, James... One of the things I wanted to ask you is the idea of, is praying something that you do? Is it? Because if it's something that you do, then the power and strength comes only from you. The Bible continues to teach us that in our weakness, God is strong. God is glorified. And if prayer is a covenant, who starts the covenant? Do you or do, does God start the covenant? So know that when we say prayer, when we say let's pray, you're saying let's make a covenant with God. In the Old Testament, the word tefillah means to bind or to attach or to join together. In Jewish culture, the idea is that God has an introspection in himself to engage with his people and create a communing bonding or communal bonding with Israel. So when you look at that, you look at that and you say, well, if that's covenant, what am I doing when I pray? You're making a covenant with God. Now, I want to make a point when I say that, that in of itself, we cannot make a covenant. There was someone who had to do it for us. That's why I wanted to frame James back to Exodus 32. So let's all go there. If you have your Bibles, if you have your Bible app, let's all together go to Exodus 32. And we're going to start on verse 7. And it says on verse 7, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. Let's stop there. Here's the, a little bit of background on what's going on. Israel had just been freed from Egypt, right? And they're walking through the desert. Their promise was to go to the land that God has promised to, uh, promised to his people. Now they stopped, and they're, uh, they're camping in the bottom of Mount Sinai. And Moses went up in the mountain to commune with God, to pray with God. Moses was gone for 40 days. 40 days. Guys, how long do we pray? I mean, I think five minutes in and I'm already bored. If I'm going to confess and be real with you. And that's my heart. Moses prayed for 40 days. He stood in the presence of God for 40 days. Now, the people of Israel then started getting bored, started getting tired, started getting wandering. They started to wander. 
And they put pressure on Aaron and said, Aaron, make us a god. Make us an idol so we can worship something. And Aaron succumbed to pressure and he started making an idol. And that's where we pick up. Again, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who, you brought, you, who brought you up out of Egypt. Notice what God said there. One, I know what you're doing. His omnipotent, omnipotent omniscient, all-knowing God knows what he's doing, knows what Israel was doing. Secondly, he notices and he knows how our, our heart can turn away so quickly. Didn't Israel just see the miracle of God bringing them out of Egypt? Forty days later, they're already asking a different God to lead them out of there. How many times have we done that ourselves? Where last week we probably saw the goodness of God, and yet the following day have fallen back. Notice he also said, they have made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. Now, they, when, when you've heard this story, you probably heard that they made a calf, a golden calf. But that's not what the texts say. God calls out the sin for what it is. And God said, they made an idol out of a calf. What kind of idols have we make daily? And maybe you don't even notice that we're actually casting an idol ourselves. In your day-to-day -day routine, do you find your strength in yourself? Do you find your strength in your career? Do you find your identity in your family? Do you find your hope in your kids? Now, not all, all of those things are not bad. But when you elevate them into an idol and say, these are important, these are uppermost in my affection, then God's going to call it for what it is. It's an idol. I know it's hard to hear. But listen and listen to the Spirit. Um, well, actually, I'm going to go back to that. But I want to go back on, on verse 9. He said, I have seen this people, the Lord said, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and then I will make you into a great nation. Anyone has ever had a stiff neck here before? Raise your hands. That's it? Oh, my gosh. You guys are awesome. But if you've had a stiff neck before, you know it's horrible, right? I mean, it, it, there's a point where you can't turn. So instead of turning with your neck, you turn with your body, right? And it hurts. And you, what's the cause usually? You lay down wrong, right? Usually. So you laid your head wrong, you, you put it some other way. So you have a stiff neck. Now, why is God saying that? Because we're stubborn. We are stiff-necked people. And we have a hard time of acknowledging that. 
But if we do, there is hope in that. There is hope not because of our stiff neck, but because of God's mercy. Secondly, and this is one of those most uncomfortable things that most people don't want to deal with, is notice in the verse where it says, Now leave me alone, Moses, so that my anger may turn or may burn against them. Now, how many of us believe God's wrath is real? It is. But some people have, uh, have an uncomfortable feeling in saying that. And they may say, you know what? God is love. I can't see a God who's wrathful. And that's okay. Now, Tim Keller, when he actually preached back in 1992, he was dealing with the same thing. And I wanted to read to you guys how he kind of dealt with this idea. So this is in 1992 when Keller said, there are a lot of people who struggle mightily with the idea of God being wrathful. They say if God is a God of love, he doesn't send people to hell. If God is a God of judgment, he can't be a God of love. I can't reconcile the two things. Yet the Bible insists that, only, that not only is God a God both of love and wrath, not only do those things not conflict with each other, but they actually establish each other. One without the other is nonsense. One without the other is meaningless. If you actually try to somehow remove or excise the message of wrath and judgment of God, what you actually have is nothing left at all. That's scathing. Now, how did he deal with that? You know how he dealt with that? Eight years later, eight years later in his sermon, he approaches us again. So my, my, my plea to you is that if you are in that sense or if you are in that view, let God work in your heart and let him, let him help you find and navigate through that. Because if Keller, who's one of, uh, one of the great speakers of our nation right now, struggle with it, we can struggle with it. So don't condemn ourselves if you do, if you do fall in that category. What does he say eight years later? He says, I came to realize in the Garden of Gethsemane that if you get rid of the idea of hell and wrath, you have a less loving God. If you don't believe in wrath and hell, it trivializes what he has done. What he has done. If you get rid of God who has wrath and wrath in hell, you have a God who loves us in general. But that's not as loving as the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ, who loves us with costly love. Do you guys realize when Paul writes his letter, he opens it up with God, who is our Father and Savior of the Lord Jesus Christ. In those simple texts, he tells us why God's love and wrath exists. You guys realize that? Because if we pray only to a God and not Jesus, then we pray to a God who's just, who's holy, who's wrathful. His holiness cannot be in the same presence as our nature. But God's love allowed us to be in his presence, not because of our nature, but because of who Jesus Christ is. So when we say that I pray to God, our Father, 
and the Savior of Lord Jesus Christ. You are saying that God is both love and wrath and in it grace for you and for me. So I know it's hard, but I want to make sure that we get to the bottom of prayer. I want to get to what Moses is getting to here. So let's continue on to verse 11. But Moses, here it is. There's one of the most important things. So guys, listen, read, but I need you to, to go with me. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give you descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. This is Moses' prayer. A couple things. If God told you to say, leave me alone in a mountain, in a mountain and it's all his glory is there, I would probably go. I would probably be fearful. But what did Moses do? He stayed. He sought favor from the Lord. Notice that. He sought favor from the Lord. He stayed there. And what did Moses do? Remember from the prior verses, God said, these are your people. What did Moses say? No, God, this is, this is your people. I cannot be a God to them. I make a crummy God. These are your people. You brought them out, not I. You did. So if you're going through something right now, career, money, family, your husband, your kids, they're not gonna bring you out of that. God will. Jesus can. He does and he will. God is good, amen? I can't hear you. God is good, amen? amen. How do we know he's good? You run to the cross. You run to the cross. That's how you know he's good. Charles Spurgeon. Actually, before I say that, I want to look at verse 14. That's the last verse. It says, The Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he threatened. He relented. Well, was it because of Moses' prayer? Was it Moses' prayer that, that made God change his mind? No. No. Now, it's hard to tackle this in human terms, in man terms. Because whatever God described, whatever God has done, and what he's saying, he's done it for his own divine glory. Charles Spurgeon explains a couple of things that will help us understand this. I suppose that I need not say that this verse speaks after the manner of men. 
I do not know after what other manner we can speak. To speak of God after the manner of God is reserved for God himself. And mortal, mortal men could not comprehend such speech. In this sense, the Lord often speaks not according to the literal fact, but according to the appearance of things to us, things to us, in order that we may understand so far as the human can comprehend the divine. Now, it's not the power or the strength of Moses' prayer that changed God's mind. No. God's covenant with his people kept the, standing of, kept the standing of the people and changed it from a place of judgment to a place of mercy. So when you pray, your prayer doesn't change God's mind, but your, your standing changes because you follow and you act and you align your heart to God's heart. Now, prayer, again, is a covenant. Who starts the covenant? Jesus God does. So when you're praying, you are aligning your heart to his will. So your prayer changes. The longer you pray, the relentlessness of your prayer, the relentlessness that Moses showed, despite God telling him to leave him alone, he said, no, God, I'm not going to let go. And my prayer is not, um, it's not of changing my circumstances or the circumstances of, of your people. I'm, I'm going after your heart. Remember your promise. Remember your covenant, covenant. It's your covenant, not mine. That despite, if, if, even if you de decimated the people, you will still go with your covenant. You will still uh, accomplish your plan despite all of that. But God, remember your covenant with your people. Remember your prayer with your people. So remember what prayer is. Because I'm going to go back to that. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse um, 3 and 6, I want to read to you, who's a better Moses? Now why is Moses, why am I framing this in Moses? One, because Moses' prayer can give us an insight on how to pray to God. Secondly, Moses is a shadow of who is going to be coming after him. Who is a better Moses? So if you're in, uh, in Hebrews, read with me, please. In chapter 3, he says, let's start with verse 3. For Jesus has been counter, counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And in verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we, we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Who is our hope? Jesus. Jesus. So I want to go now back to James. Now he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Now what's the implication there? That despite the circumstances that you're in, God asks you to keep his covenant with him. So if you're suffering, if you're going through something, let him pray. And if you're cheerful, if you're joyful, let him sing praise. What is praise but just prayer in melody? 
Guys, when you come here today, worship starts right when you sit down, right when you wake up. When Billy or Brandon gets up here, you'll notice that all the songs that we have is carefully chosen to preach the gospel. That if I, I or Reynolds did not preach here, then the songs that you hear will preach the gospel to you. So Brandon, when he gets up here, he's preaching the gospel to you. When Randall gets up here, when, when Trevor gets up here, we preach the gospel to you in spoken word. And in both, the Holy Spirit works. In both, the Holy Spirit asks you to pray and keep his covenant with him. Our prayers should arise out of immersion in the scripture. We speak only to the degree we are spoken to. The wedding of the Bible and prayer anchors your life down to the real God. Now, how many times have we actually gone to God when we're happy, when we're joyful? I think most of the time we forget. Most of the time we forget. There's a complacency that happens when everything is going great. And when everything is falling apart, we do everything else but pray. And at the end say, you know what, I haven't prayed yet, maybe this will work. But the Bible tells us, come and pray. Come, come in here, get in here. You know what, um, what researchers found about singing is interesting. Singing praise, what kind, what kind of things it, can it gather from our hearts? Stacy Horn actually said this, she's a researcher, and I want to read this for you. What researchers are beginning to discover is that singing is like an infusion of the perfect tranquilizer, the kind of both that soothes your nerves and elevates your spirits. It continues to say that, that it can produce endorphins and oxytocin as you sing. It said the benefits of singing is cumulative. In one study, singers were found to have lower levels of cortisol, indicating lower stress. And then it says in the, 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 the longer verse or the end of the verse, it says, a guided group, or it turns out that you don't even have to be a good singer to reap the rewards. According to a 2005 study, group singing can produce the satisfying therapeutic sensations, even when the sound produced by your voice is of mediocre quality. So I have mediocre quality singing voice, but that should not stop me from singing to him. And James 5:14 he says, "Anyone among you sick? Why is he switching now from sick to your circumstances? Is this part of your circumstances? Has anyone here been sick? Yes? I, I've been sick. So I don't know about you, but maybe you haven't been sick. He says, if, you, if anyone among you has been sick, let him call the elders of the church and let them pray him, pray over him, anointing him in oil in the name of the Lord. So what's the implication there? One of the things that, that James kind of tries to wrap around is that the idea of being sick is mostly about spiritually sick. 
Now, God cares about your spiritual heart more than he cares about your physical. Now, the idea that your sickness can come from sin is true. It can. Unrepentant sin can manifest itself in physical terms. And you know that. We know that. My son was uh, about a year old, about a year ago. Uh, he just started, to, uh, know, uh, just started to walk, and he started to know how to climb. And one day, my wife left me with my son, of course. Uh, and I, I'm watching TV, and I thought he was watching with me. Um, and then I heard a whimper. And he couldn't talk yet, but I heard him. I was like, what's going on? And I look around, and I come from, uh, from the living room to the kitchen, and I see him climbing using the cabinets as a stairs because he wanted something on the kitchen. Now, he probably thought, it was like, man, I am so cool. I can climb. But what he didn't think probably was the fact that he can't come down. But as a father, as his dad, when he whimpered, I came running. Now, the Christian imagination is this. How many times have you whimpered? You can't even say or speak a word when you're sick or you're suffering. Now, how much more does your father run to you when you whimper? How much more does he love you than your earthly father does? So James is framing our perspective Our circumstances doesn't dictate who God is, but God dictates our response to him in prayer of who he is. And I know that this is heavy. I know it can be tough to hear that prayer is something that you thought you'd been doing right, but I think we have an inaccurate way, inaccurate idea of what prayer is. And James is trying to attack that. He's trying to change that perspective. Now, there's a lot more that I would love to say about this, but I wanted to give us an opportunity to actually pray today. Now, don't worry. I'm going to pick this up on next Sunday, but this is one thing I want to do for us today. I want to give us an opportunity to actually pray This is the application part. Again, remember I told you the application happens after your obedience to the will of God. So let's obey today. Now we're gonna continue with our message and this is part of the message, but this is also gonna be a time for communion. So when we do communion today, it's still gonna be the same thing. We're gonna come out from this side and we're gonna go and pick up the communion. The only difference is that our pastors are gonna be there and they're gonna serve you communion. So Randall's gonna be on one side, Billy's gonna be on one side and they will pass you the communion. When you come back, when you come back, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to pray. You can pray with each other, you can pray by yourself. If you're new here, you're gonna be like, this is weird, this is awkward. It's okay, it's fine to be awkward. But I, what I would love you for you to do is we pray right now. We align ourselves to God's heart and pray with him. Can we do that, church? Can we do that? 
So I would, I would ask is Randall, if you could stand on, on that one side and Billy's gonna be on that side. Our prayer team is gonna be standing on one side. They're gonna be there to be available for you to pray. And then we're gonna do that. You're gonna come out, get your communion, gather with someone if you want. Again, you're praying to God, not to your neighbor. You're praying, you're making covenant with God. So let's do that. And then I'll come back up and we'll can close out. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.